thank you everyone for coming. Uh, my name is Kelly Cobb uh, and I'm with the Cato Institute. <clears throat> um, this will be a, a pretty good discussion on a topic that uh, unless you've had your head buried in the sand for the past number of months um, uh, will greatly impact uh, the next 10 years probably of um, spending and defense issues in the United States. Uh, as you know, uh, in a little over two months, um, the Obama administration has to cut at least $55 billion in defense spending uh, per sequestration in the Budget Control Act. Um, and this has created quite a storm. Um, uh, some uh, Keynesians and others argue that this spending will increase unemployment, that it will impact the economy negatively. Um, others argue, uh, obviously, that the spending cuts won't harm defense. Um, and that uh, they are trivial compared to the overall reduction in the baseline, amongst other things. Um, uh, this is a conversation that kind of cuts across party lines, uh, which is interesting as well. So I'm pleased to introduce our two speakers from Cato, who will flesh this out in a little bit more detail. Um, <clears throat> first is Dan Mitchell, who's our senior fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, working on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Uh, he's an advocate of the flat tax and international tax competition. He has previously worked with the Heritage Foundation, Senator Bob Packwood, and the Senate Finance Committee, um, as well as Citizens for a Sound Economy, directing the tax and budget program back in the 90s. Um, he's a frequent guest on television and, and has penned a number of op-eds in papers like the Wall Street Journal and so on. Uh, he holds a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Georgia and a PhD in economics from George Mason University. Uh, we also have Chris Preble, who is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of three books, uh, most recently The Power Problem, How American Military Dominates Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, which examines the overall cost uh, of the U economic cost of the U.S. military. Um, he's also been published in numerous public publications, including USA Today, Los Angeles Times, amongst others. Um, before joining Cato, he caught, taught uh, at a couple of universities. Um, uh, he was commissioned, uh, he was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served as, aboard the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. He's been st steeped in defense his entire life, really. He has a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. Um, I invite Dan to come up and make remarks first. Uh, thank you, Kelly. Uh, I have to be very careful with Kelly up here as a moderator. He's known as the Candy Crowley of the uh, Cato Institute. You say one wrong thing, he's going to jump in and give uh, his opinion on things. Uh, what I want to do is talk about uh, the sort of the fiscal policy economic issues involved with sequestration and the possible implications of other alternatives. And then I'll leave it to Chris to talk about uh, more of the defense policy issues. I asked him about this the other day. He says, as long as his pension's protected, he's okay with whatever happens. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna talk about this, as I said, from the, uh, the broader perspective. And first, I wanna do a little bit of remedial public finance economics. Uh, remedial because anytime you're on Capitol Hill you have to really, uh, not because you guys need it, but because sometimes your bosses need a little bit of background reminders about how government policy in terms of taxes and spending uh, really works. And uh, the most important thing probably is to understand that government spending is the key variable. Not deficits or debt, those can be important. But government spending is the measure of how many resources are being diverted from the productive sector of the economy uh, to finance government. And whether you finance that government with taxes or borrowing, that can have second order effects 
it can be important. Your deficits and debt can become so high that that's a problem. We see that in Greece and Spain and other European welfare states. But you can also have taxes that are too high. And we see that in terms of uh, high tax economies like France and Italy not having any growth. Uh, so it's the government spending. That's, the, that's sort of the underlying disease. And then taxes and borrowing are like the symptoms of that disease. But again, keep in mind our number one focus, the, if there's one variable I would say you should look at, it's government spending as a share of GDP, because that measures what share of your economy's productive capacity is being diverted to government. Uh, now, looking specifically, boy, this is a very sensitive uh, thing here. Uh, looking at where we stand right now in the US, uh, the burden of government spending has jumped a lot during the Bush-Obama years. And I lumped together Bush and Obama for a very deliberate reason. Their fiscal policies are almost identical. Uh, they both, whether they, regardless of their underlying philosophical uh, attitudes, their public policies were almost identical in terms of government spending rising uh, much faster than the underlying growth rate of the economy. And that's why we went from, when Bill Clinton left office, a burden of federal spending of 18.2% of GDP to we're up now somewhere around 24% of GDP. But in some sense, this is the good news. Because if we look in the future, this first is a, a, a historical look at where government spending as a share of GDP on the federal level has been uh, from 1900 to uh, roughly, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago. This is an old chart. Uh, this is what's going to happen in the future, according to the Congressional Budget Office estimates, baseline and alternative scenarios. Uh, I guess you could call them the optimistic and pessimistic scenarios. I think both of these scenarios are too optimistic because uh, they all assume a couple of things that I think are very unrealistic. The, this chart right here from CBO data assumes that politicians between now and the end of eternity will not increase government spending by one additional penny. That's not an assumption I would want to bet money on. And also, if you look at the CBO long-run forecast and you read their methodology, which I don't recommend, it's very boring, uh, but one thing you'll find is that they assume the economy's rate of, rate of growth is fixed regardless of the size of government. Well, that's obviously kind of silly. We can look at Hong Kong and see government spending about 20% of GDP. We can see France government spending of 55% of GDP. We see Hong Kong, and on average, grows three times faster than France. There's a reason for that. And then we see the US, we're sort of in the middle. Except in this case, we don't want to be Goldilocks in the middle. Uh, we, we'd much rather be Hong Kong. But our growth rate historically has been between France and between Hong Kong. And so there is a very clear relationship, not just anecdotally, but also in the empirical literature. The bigger your government is, the slower your growth rate is. But CBO doesn't capture that at all. We're not going to grow as fast if uh, we see these kinds of numbers materialize that CBO is forecasting. In other words, when you're looking at government spending as a share of GDP, there's a numerator, government spending, there's a denominator, GDP. If the numerator is going up, the denominator is going to be going down, or at least it's not going to be rising as fast, which of course will change the ratio uh, over time. I'm trying to touch this very gently here so I don't uh, skip forward several. Uh, so this brings us now to the whole issue of the sequester and whether it's desirable. Well, in some sense, it's not desirable because there are much smarter, more intelligent ways of trying to control the growth of government spending. And I would also you know, be the first one to admit 
that in some sense, the sequester is unfair to the defense budget. The defense budget, depending on how you measure it, it's what, 20, 25% of total federal spending. It has to take 50% of the sequester. And when you look at those long-run numbers about what's happening to the growth of government, that's almost entirely because of the growth of domestic spending. So if all of our long-term fiscal problem is because of domestic spending, yeah, it's a little bit unfair. If I was the defense LA or something like that, I might think this isn't the best way of doing fiscal policy. But we're in the real world. And in the real world, we have a couple of options. We can do nothing. That's basically the Obama budget. You leave everything on autopilot. If you leave everything on autopilot, some people call this the Thelma and Louise approach because you're going over a cliff. Uh, I call it the Greece approach because that basically means that, that chart from CBO showing the burden of government spending skyrocketing, that's where that leads. Now, maybe we'll have an interesting twist and a turn somewhere on that road, but ultimately, if you're leaving government on autopilot, you're going to become Greece. Another approach is to do something misguided. And this is what I, uh, how I char characterize the Simpson-Bowles budget. Real tax increases up front in exchange for empty promises of future spending restraint, along with the wrong kind of entitlement reform. Now, I'm an anti-tax person, but I might be willing, I might be seducible, if somebody was going to give me something real in exchange for higher taxes. If we got real entitlement reform, like block granting of Medicaid or something like that, Okay, you might be able to trick me into a tax increase, but if all I'm getting, which is what you have in Simpson-Bowles, is a bunch of means testing and price fixing, policies which we've tried in the past have never worked, I don't think that's a good deal, it's not going to get us anywhere, it's the 1990 budget deal all over again, then you could do something like the Ryan budget, which has some of the real entitlement reforms, but it doesn't seem to be a short-term option uh, given Harry Reid in the Senate and Obama in the White House. So that really leaves us with one choice the sequester. It's clumsy, it's a little bit unfair, but at least it's real. And that's something you don't get generally in Washington. If you look at past fiscal packages, it's very unusual that politicians will do real things, they'll do gimmicks, but what a sequester does is it actually extinguishes budget authority. And just a little bit of background for those of you who, don't, uh, who are lucky enough not to be immersed in the budget. Budget authority is when money is put in an agency's checkbook. Outlays are when you write a check and you actually spend the money. A sequester extinguishes budget authority. Here's what happens under a sequester. The two, the two bars together, or the two colors together, the, the red and the blue, uh, that's total spending without the sequester, and the blue is spending with the sequester. Government still grows, and it grows dramatically. It will be $2 trillion higher 10 years in the future under a sequester. This is not draconian. I want draconian. That's the great thing about working at the Cato Institute. I can fantasize about that world that the Founding Fathers envisioned with a federal government of 3% of GDP, which, by the way, we saw on that chart uh, we had back uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, but here's what happens under, under a sequester. And Chris, obviously, will talk more about the details of the defense side of the budget, uh, but we're not talking about reducing dramatically government. We're simply slowing, in a very tiny way, the growth of federal spending under a sequester. Uh, I already mentioned and talked about some of the problems with Simpson-Bowles, uh, especially, I think, uh, the fact that it's not real entitlement reform. Um, and there's no good budget process reform in it. There's nothing like the MAP Act 
uh, in, the, uh, in the House or the CAP Act in the Senate that's designed to put uh, sequester and force controls on government spending. Uh, but, you know, I will say, I'll be the first to admit, Simpson-Bowles is better than what Obama's talking about, because Obama doesn't even have fake entitlement reform, and he does have class warfare tax increases, where at least the Simpson-Bowles people, they're trying to do tax reform and tax increase together, so they do lower some tax rates, but they take away so many deductions and increase double taxation that you wind up uh, losing $2 of, of higher taxes to government for every $1 of lower tax rates you get. I want to also briefly say something about the Keynesian argument, because this, this is really disappointing. And I sometimes hear radio commercials during this election season about it. It really, um, I don't know, it, it, it sort of, I'd say it sours my view of Washington, but I don't see how that could possibly happen. But some people are saying, oh, we can't allow the sequester because you're going to have job losses. Well, if what they were saying is that as a result of reducing government spending and leaving more resources in the productive sector of the economy, we might lose a few jobs in sector A, but we'll gain jobs in sector B, that would be honest. Because there's no question if you're in a very defense-reliant uh, uh, district or something like that and you have a sequester, yes, there could be some negative effects. But we're not Keynesians, or at least we shouldn't be Keynesians. And just as Obama was wrong in 2009 when he said squandering $800 billion on a so-called stimulus was going to create jobs, Republicans today are wrong when they say that a sequester is going to cost jobs. Government spending, at best, simply redistributes income in the economy. It doesn't create wealth. It doesn't create jobs. So again, you can argue legitimately that yes, my district or this community might suffer job losses because of the transitional cost of shifting resources from government back to the productive sector of the economy, but to argue that economy-wide there would be job losses, uh, in effect, you are embracing the same failed mentality that Obama uh, was displaying uh, with his so-called stimulus. You have to look at both the seen and the unseen. When government doesn't spend money, it doesn't mean that the money disappears. When government isn't misallocating labor and capital, it means that that labor and capital is available for the private sector of the economy. Here's sort of my golden rule on fiscal policy. This sort of brings you back to the remedial uh, uh, public finance economics I talked about at the beginning. The number one goal of fiscal policy should be to have government grow slower than the private sector. If government grows slower than the private sector, what happens over time? You're reducing government spending as a share of GDP. What's happened under Bush and Obama? Government has grown faster, has grown faster than the private sector of the economy. And where does that lead, leave you in the long run? It leaves you with Greece. It leaves you with Italy, with Spain, with some of the failed European uh, welfare states. And that's why, even though the sequester isn't the ideal way to control the size of government and to reduce the burden of government spending, it is the only option on the table right now. In some sense, I think this boils down to a simple choice. Do you get seduced into a Simpson-Bowles type deal? which will be even worse probably than the 1990 budget deal, which, by the way, is going to probably reduce the defense baseline in the long run, so at the end of 10 years, you'll probably be in the same place you would be anyhow. Or do you take the sequester, which at least imposes a tiny bit of spending discipline also on the domestic side of the budget? Uh, so identify the problem, the size of government, 
uh, figure out how to bend down the cost curve of government, and that's what a sequester does, real extinguishing of budget authority. And then, of course, it's up to you guys. You have to convince voters that liberty is better than dependency if we want to achieve some of these things. So with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, uh, Chris Preble. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. You can get back to your cookie now. Um, I need to correct the record, which is what I usually have to do when I follow Dan Mitchell. I am not entitled to a Navy pension, so just for the record, I wish I was, but I, I'm not. Okay. So effects of sequestration on the Pentagon's budget. Um, why, I guess a, a fair question to start is why focus on um, the Pentagon's budget? Now, see, you, you broke this thing, didn't you? Because it was working fine, and then next, next. You didn't offer to give me part of your pension. I, I didn't. <laughs> or the cookie, right? Am I hitting the right button? OK. All right. Those fine motor skills are difficult. See, he, he definitely he broke it. All right. Why focus on defense? Um, because the first thing we have to remember is the sequestration cuts equally from defense spending and from domestic discretionary spending. Now, I'm the first to say, and this, by the way, comes from downsizinggovernment.org, great website, uh, Cato website, our friend Chris Edwards, our colleague, runs this. For those of you up here on the Hill who are who here all the time, we can't possibly cut. Uh, downsizing government has uh, a wealth of information on how to actually cut uh, 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 government spending. Um, why focus on, on defense? Uh, because it's true that uh, a very, the, the largest rising share, and the, and the chart that, that Dan showed you about the rising government spending as a share of GDP in particular, is driven by entitlements. And I want to be very clear. You know, I, I've been railing against entitlements. True story. You guys can look this up. Uh, I, I first wrote about reforming Social Security and creating a pay-as-you-go system in 1986 as a sophomore at George Washington University. You can look it up. Okay? So I've been railing against Social Security since as long as I can remember. Okay? So I think that it was a mistake to leave that off the table, but they didn't leave it off the table. We're just dealing with domestic discretionary spend, with discretionary spending, domestic and non, and defense spending, and defense spending right now accounts for about 20% of total federal spending. That's what I'm going to talk about today. The other reason why I'm talking about defense is because <clears throat> people who are typically quite skeptical of the Keynesian argument for using government spending to stimulate the economy are also among the most vocal advocates for spending on the military to stimulate the economy or flip side of that, claiming that cuts in military spending will result in huge losses in the economy. Uh, this from Mitt Romney's speech to the uh, Republican National Convention. Uh, trillion dollar cuts will eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, and again, he's not alone. Uh, the GOP platform also says uh, the same thing, sequestration would result in, actually this is in the same paragraph of the Republican platform. In, at the top of the paragraph, it says sequestration would result in, in one the loss of one million skilled workers. And then later in that same paragraph, it says uh, will result in the loss of 1.5 million defense-related jobs. Now, now, there are two problems with this claim. First of all, uh, an additional half trillion implies that there have already been cuts in spending. Uh, and then also the question about job losses. As we said, the Pentagon's budget would decline under sequestration by about $55 billion. Domestic discretionary spending would also decline by about $55 billion. Uh, in the case of the Pentagon, that's about not quite 11 percent. Okay? Put it in perspective. Uh, next. 
Now see, look at this. Oh, there it is. Wait. Wow. Okay, you broke this thing, Mitchell, I swear. All right. Perspective. A little bit of perspective. Looking at budget authority in constant dollars. All the charts that I'm going to show you today are in constant 2012 dollars. The reason why I show this chart is because as it happens, defense spending does rise and fall after wars. You got a flavor of this in, in uh, Dan's chart, the two big spikes, World War I and World War II, but there were also some smaller spikes, which are uh, here, respectively, Korea. See, this doesn't work either. That's what I, see that? Look at that. Okay, see? It doesn't work. All right. Korea, Vietnam, Reagan buildup. Those are the peaks, okay? The troughs are post-Korea, post-Vietnam, post-Reagan buildup. Actually, the main, the, the, believe it or not, the, the last peak shown there, 86, that decline came under, uh, during Ronald Reagan's second term. That was uh, largely because of the um, Graham-Rudman-Hollings uh, Deficit Reduction Act. That actually started the, uh, to, to bend the cost curve down, as we say, uh, in 1986. So for frame of reference, the, the most recent inflection point is 1998. That's where military spending started to rise. From 1998 to 2008, spending rose by 88% in inflation, real inflation-adjusted terms, okay? 88%. And the average spending, to keep in mind here, is the average from 48 to 2012 was about $463 billion, and during the Cold War, it was about $435 billion. Keep that in mind, because what we're talking about under sequestration, uh, the average will be about uh, 480, 490 billion, somewhere in that range, depending upon the rate of inflation, et cetera. So the real question is, have there been cuts? And this is the thing I want you to keep in mind, because most of the decline that we've seen since 2010 has been a result of the end of the war in Iraq and the drawdown that's planned in Afghanistan. And if you look at the bottom line, the pink line, fuchsia, whatever, that's the base budget, the Pentagon's base budget. When you take war costs out of the equation, it looks like this, and you can see that the base budget has not declined in real inflation-adjusted dollars, or very, very modestly, very, very modestly, okay? Next, if you look at sequestration, where that puts us, it puts us to about where we were in 2007. See where that is, okay? Sequestration is the blue line, the greenish, greenish blue line, green line, I guess it is, right? And we assume there will be some additional war costs into the future. We don't know exactly how much. There's a placeholder in there in the, in the Obama's budget, and we're, we have reason to believe that's not quite accurate. To open this picture up a little bit farther, take us back to, to the beginning of the, uh, or the end of World War II, you can see that under sequestration, in real inflation-adjusted dollars, the Pentagon's budget will be higher than the Cold War average. At a time when we were fighting, a big, mad, nasty Soviet bear. That's what I was trained to fight and kill. And by the way, I was serving in the U.S. Navy when the Soviet Union collapsed, so I get to claim credit for causing the collapse of the Soviet Union, me and about 10 million other people. Um, okay. More than that, actually. They actually gave out certificates, you know, by the way. If you served in the military from 1945 to 1991, you get to have a certificate that says, I fought and won the Cold War. For real. I got it on my wall. It's pretty cool. All right. So I'm pretty excited about the fact that I helped to win the Cold War. Um, so let's talk, I, I, I want, so the, the first point of this presentation was to, was to deal with this question, this claim that there have already been massive cuts in military spending. Not true. The next question is, 
jobs. Would actual cuts, and sequestration would result in actual cuts, not just imaginary ones, in the future, would such cuts result in massive job losses, hundreds of thousands of job loss? This statistic comes from several different studies, but the most important of which is by uh, Professor Stephen Fuller at George Mason. He ran the numbers initially in October 2011 and said that just looked at procurement spending, so 45 billion of the 55 billion, would result in a decline of GDP of $86.5 billion in just one year, in 2013, and the loss of over a million full-time jobs. Actually, again, it was remarkably uh, precise, 1 million 6,315 full-time jobs, really, really specific. That implies a Keynesian multiplier of 1.92. Okay? You just do the math, 86.5 divided by 45 billion, that amounts to 1.92. Okay? Then Dr. Fuller came back earlier this year in the summer and came out with a second study that looked at the effects of both defense and non-defense sequestration and concluded that that would result in a loss of $215 billion of GDP in just one year uh, and the loss of more than two, 2 million jobs. Uh, again, the, the, the key point there is that he assumes the Keynesian multiplier is actually uh, greater, that you'd have a greater uh, harmful effect on the economy from non-defense spending cuts than from defense spending cuts. So this is where the source of the claims, and there are ads running all the time, and, and, and Dan alluded to them, about the job losses that would come from these kinds of cuts. Well, as it happens, we got, we got kind of lucky because before the Fuller papers were published, uh, we had commissioned uh, economist Benjamin Zeiker to do a study of what are the effects of military spending on the economy. And he published his paper, Cato published it, we actually just had an event at Cato last week, with Dr. Zeicher and Professor Fuller and Steve Moore from the Wall Street Journal. And this is a quick summary of Ben's main findings. He talks about the effects of uh, the additional burden of taxation that uh, is used to create the spending for on defense, and that if that money was returned to the private sector, to the more productive sector of the economy, and you derive additional savings from reducing the excess burden of taxation, you could actually achieve a benefit greater than the amount of cuts, which might seem a little counterintuitive, but it's pretty widely understood among economists, including some economists who, who also seem to be quite big fans of military spending, um, strangely, that, uh, that the distortionary effects of taxes on the economy result in reduced pr uh, productivity, reduced economic activity. We can talk about that. Dan's the real expert on this stuff. I'll give all those questions to him. Um, the other problem with the Fuller study is, so the, the main problem we have with the Fuller study is it focuses just on uh, the harmful direct effects of military spending cuts and not on the potential beneficial effects of freeing those resources into the private sector, into the more productive sector of the economy. That's what uh, Dan was talking about in terms of the seen and the unseen. The other problem with Fuller's study is that, and I've already alluded to this, is that the multipliers that he claims are completely out of whack, that's the technical term, relative to uh, the scholarly literature on Keynesian uh, multipliers. Even if you believe that it's a good idea for the government to take uh, resources out of the private sector and reinvest them into the public sector or in, in other companies in the private sector because they are more wise and know, know better where these resources can be allocated, very, very few studies, in fact, none that I've seen, find a, a multiplier even close to what Dr. Fuller comes up with. The closest size, the range is somewhere in 0.6 and 0.8. That is, 
0.6 and 0.8, if you have a multiplier of less than 1, then the net effect of your uh, stimulus is actually reducing the size of the overall economy because you have merely shifted resources from one place to the next and you have uh, uh, transition costs and other things like that and inefficiencies that are resulting in that, so it actually results in lower GDP. Um, so we published that study. There's a couple other graphs that Ben, has, ben Zeicher has in his paper that I wanted to show you to try to make this argument for us. Wow. Okay. The first is, oh, there, that one. The first is if you look at the, the share of defense spending, the contribution of defense to real GDP growth, there is no correlation, and in fact, no statistical correlation at all at any uh, level of significance. By contrast, the share of private sector investment to the economy is, a, is very closely correlated. And that directly relates to what uh, Dan was saying a few minutes ago about when you divert resources out of the private sector, it results in reduced uh, productivity. And if you leave those out of the public sector, yes. When you divert those resources out of the public sector into the private sector, it results in greater economic growth. This is the data that shows that. Okay? The other reason why it's important to just kind of keep all this in perspective um, is that even though we, in some areas of the country, and in particularly in Northern Virginia where I live, and there are a few other places in, in, in the country, uh, defense spending is clearly an important uh, economic activity, but it is still a tiny share of the economy as a whole, and actually expected to decline a little bit. My, my dissertation, my first book, uh, was on military spending in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when arguably defense spending as a share of GDP uh, accounted for close to 10% of economic activity. So when you made cuts like that, it, it had more of an impact, but you still have to account for the other 90% of the economy that's not connected to the, to the military. Now you have to account for the 96.4%, roughly, that's not connected directly to the economy. And even if you believe in the Keynesian multiplier and some kind of secondary and tertiary effects of military spending, which I do to some extent, you have to remember that military spending still accounts for a very, very small share of the total economy, and therefore cuts on the order that we're talking about are somewhere between uh, one-third and two-thirds of one percent of GDP, okay? Um, so the bottom line, a couple things. Um, first of all, the cuts that we are talking about here are modest when compared to other drawdowns. I showed you post-Korea, I showed you post-Vietnam, I showed you post-Cold War. What we would be talking about would be modest, especially relative to where we started, where the previous baseline was, where we started in terms of the inflection point. Remember I said 88% real growth from 98 to 2010, okay? So modest. The other important thing to remember is that sequestration affects authority, budget authority, not outlays. Dan already referred to this. So the ability to accommodate some uh, wiser that, you know, it's implied that every single cut is going to be completely mindless and there will be no discretion whatsoever. That's also not true, okay, because companies have, uh, companies and contracts have, have already been authorized in previous budget years and those outlays that have not yet been spent will be spent in 2013. The effects are likely to be uh, more modest. If you plotted, I've done this, if you plot authority versus outlays, you will see that pretty consistently outlays lag authority when it's either going up or going down. And we should expect to see the same thing in 2013, 14, and probably into 15. Okay? Second, and this is an important point, we made the case, my colleague Ben Friedman and I and others at Cato have made the case for some time that we spend far more than we need here in the United States on the military in order to be safe and secure. 
And we didn't make that argument on economic grounds. We just think it's, econ it's foolish to spend more money than you actually need to spend in order to be safe and secure. The bottom line is the U.S. military is still, by any reasonable measure, the most dominant military in the world, and it will remain the most dominant military in the world for a very, very long time to come, even if we affect these cuts, because one, we're already spending far more than anyone else. Two, many of the other people who we are care about. Some of them are our allies who actually do spend some on their military. I think they should spend more, but uh, that's, that's another factor. And, and finally, we should keep in mind the, the opportunity costs. That over the long term, investing fewer resources in the military and, and allowing those resources instead to be spent in the private sector should result in uh, beneficial economic effects. And I'll close on this point. Because I am sensitive to this. Yes, it's true. I served in the Navy not long enough to earn a pension, but I served in the Navy. None of my friends are still there. He's never going to live that one down. Um, and also, I grew up in Maine. Okay, my family still lives there. I know what it's like to be to have a single state that's heavily dependent upon military industry. As it happens, uh, you know, and I've I've driven by Bath Iron Works more times than I can tell you. Okay, but as it happens, that just as with the economy as a whole, just in, in, across the country. Bath Iron Works' share of main economic activity employment has been declining over time, and other companies have risen. Um, I was actually surprised by how far, I think it's down to seven or eight largest employer in the state of Maine, last time I checked. Okay? So I understand the transition effects. The other place that I studied in quite a bit of detail, and I wrote about this earlier this year on the Cato blog, was San Diego. If you look at San Diego at the end of the, the, the Cold War, it was heavily dependent upon military spending, especially uh, aerospace. And they, they experienced a real drawdown, and they experienced some economic effects, a shock, in 91, 92, and 93. But lo and behold, by 96 or 97, when I went back and visited San Diego, the economy had come back stronger than ever. They had diversified. And the people that once upon a time had gone into uh, industry and business as engineers, uh, building planes and building rockets, they went in building things that didn't even exist when the drawdown occurred, things like biomed and internet and things like that. Those kinds of resource shifts are difficult for the individuals involved, but ultimately beneficial for the economy as a whole. And if you doubt that, then you need to throw into the ocean your iPod and your Kindle, which is at least arguably responsible for the, for the end, the demise of two of my favorite stores, Borders and Tower Records. Okay? That's how it works. It is difficult for the people involved in the short term, but over the medium to the long term, it's better for all of us. So thank you all very much, and we'll now take questions. Thanks, Kelly.